So I want to ask you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 24 first. So we're going to read um, a lot of verses today. So we'll, we'll basically kind of touch on the first part of Daniel today and we'll really get into it um, next week. Um, but I want to set the backdrop so that we can understand the context of Daniel and what had happened just before we began to read the, the pages of Daniel. And so we're going to spend quite a bit of time today in 2 Kings at the end and kind of see what was happening and taking place uh, before the captivity took place. So I'm not for sure how long, but over the next four to six weeks, we will be um, in the book of Daniel, and, and we're going to look at some of the key aspects of that. Um, I've had many conversations with you, and I know that you probably have had many conversations um, with others in the body and other believers as well, and it feels as if we've been exiled as believers. It feels as if this place that we once knew has become a strange land, and, and much of the thinking um, that has been adapted and is, and is um, just a reality in our country today. And so I've found myself over the last several months going back into the early pages of the book of Daniel and looking at how particularly these four friends lived their lives after they had been exiled from everything that they knew. knew. And they seemed to thrive in their new setting. Their faith is strong. They're very young. Um, we will see in these days ahead as we, we look at them. And so I thought it would be fitting that we, we might just walk through what I have been reading and, and studying just kind of on my own over the last um, several months. So today I want us to look at what was happening and taking place before they get to Babylon. So before the exile, Judah was involved in multiple fronts. The The northern kingdom of ten tribes has already been scattered um, by the Assyrians. All that is left is Judah. And so before Judah is carried away, they are involved on multiple fronts on several wars with Assyria and Egypt. Only later to be defeated by the Babylonians under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar. But before Judah's fall, life in the nation had been full, if you grew up there and you lived there, it was full of idolatry and full of immorality before the fall. Now under Josiah's reign, as we looked at several months ago, there had been a great revival and a tearing down of all the idols. And Josiah had done a great work to, to, to bring that about. But as, but as soon as he dies, um, his sons are put on the throne, multiple sons are put on the throne, And they are described as doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so immediately, much of the reforms that Josiah had instituted just quickly fell by the way. And they entered back into a time of immorality and idolatry. By the way, let me just say this. These two things, those two I words, always go together. Where you have great idolatry, you will always have immorality. And, And it's just the case. Unless... There's an authentic worship of God, then you have a purity and a sanctification where the people are desiring that. And so, so this was happening and taking place in Judah. For a, a bit of time in Judah, you had kings like Jehoshaphat. What a great name. What a great Bible name. Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, um, Josiah. They led great reforms within Judah, but for the most part, There just wasn't a lot of authentic faith happening and taking place. As a matter of fact, the longest reigning king, Manasseh, um, was so evil that because of his actions, we'll see here in just a moment, that God was going to bring certain judgment upon the nation. So I want you to look with me now, if you're there, in 2 Kings chapter 24. And we're going to read just two uh, and three. And I want to kind of set the stage as to why this kind of came about. Uh, Look up here just for one more second, sorry. Sorry. I think one of the things that has deeply benefited my faith over the last 15 years or so is to understand how the Old Testament fits into what is coming with the New Testament. And I think it's really important for us to understand how the Old Testament fits together. You know, when you look at the Old Testament, like, why is this book here and this book here? And it just can be really confusing. And so... So I hope maybe today we can kind of put a little bit of clarity to some of that of how does all of this fit. So look with me, 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 2. 
And the Lord sent against him bands of Chaldeans. This is one of Josiah's sons who's been put on the throne. Chaldeans are also the Babylonians and bands of Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it. According to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord. Notice that, that what is about to happen and take place at the fall of Judah is coming at the command of the Lord. This is not by accident. This is God's design about this. To remove them, it says, So surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight. Note what it says there, for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord would not pardon. I think one of the basis for our understanding as Christians in 2022, almost 2023, as to why abortion is so evil and why a lot of the things that are taking place directed at children are so bad, is you can kind of get the idea of going back and looking at this text and what was happening and reading about Manasseh. Manasseh is the king that would take children and throw them into the fire and they would sacrifice children to these foreign gods in the promised land. He should have been leading the people to have a focus on God, but he didn't. And so there was a great crying, a great bloodshed that took place of the children of Judah, covenant people. And God, looking at Manasseh, said, I, I've had enough with Judah, and so a judgment's going to become, come because of many of the things that Manasseh did. But note what Second Kings says there. It says this, because of the innocent blood of the children, of the young that was shed. This is a big deal. This is why we as believers take a stand for the sanctity of life and for the sanctity of one-year-olds and two-year-olds and in and, 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 and whatever age. I don't know if you saw, but Montana had on their ballot um, a couple weeks ago in, uh, where if a child was born alive, that by law it would be required to fight to keep that child alive if it was aborted. And the voters in Montana voted that down, that it would be legal now to just kill that baby, that if it survived an abortion, to just literally kill it on the table. So again, we think, well, that's just stuff way back when. You know, people were primitive back then. We in our world today are doing the very same things to children. And, it's, and just as God had had enough of what Judah was doing, God will always reach a place where he's had enough of a nation and their desire for bloodshed and the, and, and the loss of life that's connected to children. You remember what Jesus said, that if you cause a little one to stumble, you ought to go to the middle of the lake and tie the biggest rock around your neck and just throw yourself in. That's what you should do. That, was, that would be the wisest thing Jesus says. So this is the context of what was happening and taking place. And God was like, I'm, I'm had enough of that and I'm not going to pardon Judah because they allowed the sins of Manasseh to take root. So life in Judah before the fall, before the exile, the land was just upside down spiritually. I want to ask you to turn to Isaiah chapter 5 now for a moment. So spiritually, life was upside down. The priests and the people seemed to be content over the softness and sinfulness that um, marked the faith lives of the people. And so Isaiah spoke a hundred years before the actual fall of what things were going to be like. So I want to read several verses in Isaiah 5 because they serve our context of what's going to happen and take place here. Isaiah chapter 5, look with me in, in verse 13. He writes, Therefore my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. One of the things that was happening even in Isaiah's days, a hundred years before um, Nebuchadnezzar came and, and the exile began to happen and take place, 
is that people didn't know the law. They didn't know the Word of God. And, and because they didn't know the Word of God, they didn't know God. And so therefore, they were hungry and they were thirsty for the things that were authentic about life. And so look with me now in verse 20. Things were so bad and so upside down. Isaiah writes and calls it out and says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So in the land, people are just like something that was clearly wrong. They would, they would label it as something that was righteous and holy. Something that was righteous and holy, the people were labeling it as something that was evil. And so everything was just upside down and, and messed up. And this was, came directly because of the leadership of, Messiah, of, of Manasseh. Look at verse 26 now of Isaiah 5. So, so Isaiah is going to write, God's going to whistle. He's going to call nations to come and to bring judgment. So Isaiah 5, 26, he will raise a, a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. And when they come, look how he describes them. None are weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose. Not a sandal strap is broken. Their arrows are sharp. All their bows are bent. Their horses' hooves are so strong. They're like flint. They just keep going. They don't wear down. Their wheels like the whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion. Like young lions, they roar. They growl and seize their prey. They carry it off and none can rescue. And they growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. So when I look around today and I begin to continue to listen and, and, and have discernment and ask, and we should be, if you remember in the Old Testament, there's a, there's a text that talks about the men of Issachar, that they studied the times and they understood the times and because of that, they were able to speak into the times and, and give leadership into the times. And, and I think we need um, men and women like that, students like that, who get what's being pushed and what's being taught in churches and in the nation and, and what's being propagated that it's against, against the Lord. And we, we need our ear into the very heart of God, into the pulse of God and how he is seeing things. Because when you look around, it's very confusing. It's a lot like what we're going to read about over the next several weeks and particularly what we're going to look at today. I, I still, I, I don't know why I shake my head, but sometimes I, I watch news or I read something and I just shake my head that, that there are things being taught, things being affirmed, laws being made, decisions being made in courtrooms, that it's really clear that there is going to be no fruit of those decisions that's going to be good for anybody. But when you live in a land that is upside down and has lost its perspective of God, this is what you get. And so the reason we're going to walk through this over the next several weeks is how do you navigate and live in a world that's upside down? How do we know what to do? How do we have discernment about that? So we're going to encounter some people who were able to maintain their faith and stay strong. They lived as faithful strangers and aliens in the world that they had been sent to. So God, I'm not a good whistler, whistles for Babylon to come and they will come and they will bring judgment upon Judah. So if you will look up on the screen, I'm going to give you a little bit of background on the Babylonian people. And I'm going to talk today about the geography of Jesus. And if you would, go ahead and go to the next slide there. With uh, So we went to Kurdistan last year, which is northern Iraq, northern Babylon. Um, the stone there that's more white looking is from a, a king that Isaiah wrote about named Sennacherib. Um, it is believed that he's the one who built the, the hanging gardens of Babylon. If you've heard that, this is incredible place and so so we were driving um on our tour stopped and went to this place and there are all of these stones they're about they're like they're about this height of this and out to here 
And there's this writing on all of these stones. The Babylonians were masters and perfected early writing. Um, the one to the right, the smaller one, is in a museum. They would write these things on clay tablets, and so you can see the writing. The bigger picture that's there, um, Sennacherib built this. He was, um, he was so arrogant that these stones, every stone that was in this section that led to the, this, this was the aqueduct that sent water to the hanging gardens that he built for his wife. Every one of those stones has his name on it. And the reason he wrote his name on it, had it inscribed in every stone, and there were literally thousands of these that we saw just stacked, and some of them are buried. He was so arrogant that if someone ever overthrew what he had built, he wanted every stone that they turned over that they would read his name, that they would not forget that he was once powerful and that he was once significant. He ends up dying. Isaiah writes about him. But they were masters at that. Another thing that the Babylonians were masters at is they're the ones that really kind of perfected this 24-hour day. They worked things in periods of 60 and 6 hours, and, and so they, they did a, a tremendous amount of work with that in regard uh, to time and the calendars. Um, that, that one to the left there, um, the big one, Isaiah 37, mentions him just to, to let you know about that. So the empire that became Babylon was started by a guy named Nabopolassar. He reigned at the time as the, as the, as the powerful king Ashurbanipal, and, became the, and, and he became the first leader of Babylon in 626 B.C. So you history people are going to like this. You, history, you non-history people, just, just try to keep up, okay, for a second. Um, so he became the leader. Um, Nabopolassar overtook Ashurbanipal, and he conquered him by overthrowing the city of Nineveh. This was much later than, than Jonah, um, that, that story. And he was able to capital, um, cap, um, uh, capture the Assyrian Empire when Nineveh was overthrown. In 605 B.C., um, he died back in Babylon. But he had a son that was just south of Palestine fighting the Assyrians and, and Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. If you know in your history days, the Battle of Carchemish that's in the Bible, it's actually in the Bible, and it's, and it's when Nebuchadnezzar, Pharaoh Necho, um, the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal, and, and Nebuchadnezzar was able to capture them and defeat that battle. This is also the same battle where Josiah dies. If you remember reading the story about Josiah, he goes out to battle against Egypt that's come, Pharaoh Necho, and Necho is able to kill King Josiah, and things kind of begin to fall into chaos um, as, the, as the things of, of, of Josiah, all of his reforms began to fall apart. So this, this battle is referred to in Jeremiah chapter 46 and in 2 Chronicles chapter 35. Nebuchadnezzar reigns from 605 B.C. to 562 um, B.C. He's the one who begins to carry Judah away. There were three waves of deportation that happened and took place. If you remember, we just finished studying Habakkuk. What was Habakkuk's big fear? That Babylon was coming, remember? And was going to destroy Habakkuk Road in 610. Well, by 605, um, Judah was overthrown. Nebuchadnezzar had captured and began to deport people. So the first wave of people are taken away. Um, In 605, royal family and other noble people are taken. Second wave takes place about 597 uh, B.C. That that would include the time of Ezekiel and what Ezekiel was writing and teaching about. That eventually in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he literally destroys everything in Jerusalem. The walls, the temple, everything is destroyed in another big wave. Um, happens and takes place a third wave. There's kind of a fourth wave of people that are um, taken away as well, and that takes place in, in 582. Nebuchadnezzar was quite the military leader. He had great intelligence. He was the most powerful man in the Near East in his day. He was brilliant in the, air, in the, in the, in the realm of architecture, that probably built the most significant city of that time, the city of Babylon, it, it, from what we can tell, was just massive. Um, we know of Babylon that originally when Jonah was there, that it was so wide the walls were that you could ride a horse of chariots on top of the wall. That's how wide it was. So Nebuchadnezzar would have rebuilt this. He would have probably, because of who he was, being more powerful, 
would have rebuilt this in such a bigger way um, and made it grand. Nebuchadnezzar's name is mentioned in eight Old Testament books, and he is mentioned 88 times. One of the places that he's mentioned, God calls him my servant who's going to do my work. As a matter of fact, in Daniel chapter 5, this is what Daniel says about Nebuchadnezzar in verse 18. He says this, he's talking to uh, Nebuchadnezzar's son who's taken over. And he says, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all people's nations, languages trembled and feared before him. Listen to the power. Nebuchadnezzar was incredibly ruthless. Listen to what he did. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. This is a powerful man doing whatever he wanted to do. If this day he felt like, I'm going to kill people, he would kill people. If he wanted to save people on the next day, he would do it. He was incredibly powerful man. So the Babylonian empire under him stretched all the way down to Egypt. He was able to capture Egypt and went all the way up to Iran and to Syria. He was a powerful, powerful leader. Now I want you to continue to stay there and and we're going to walk through now 2 Kings. And I want to show you what happened and took place leading up to all of this. Okay, look up here. Is everybody good? Did you survive the history lesson? Okay, we're we're going to read history now. And, and kind of take a look at that. These are real people whom God was at work and he was alive in these days. So I want you to look in 2 Kings 23 with me a little bit so we can kind of put everything in context. 2 Kings 23, look at 28. Now the rest of all the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Syria to the river Euphrates. King Josiah went out to meet him, and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo as soon as he saw him. And his servants carried him dead in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in his father's place. So the next part talks about Jehoahaz in verse 31. was 23 years old when he began to reign. He reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatual, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libnah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. And Pharaoh Necho put him in bonds at Riblah in the land of Hamath, that he might not reign in Jerusalem, and laid on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver, a talent of gold. And Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the place of Josiah's father, and changed his name to Jehoiakim. But he took Jehoahaz away, and he came to Egypt and died there. And Jehoiakim gave the silver and the gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give money according to the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver and the gold of the people of the land according to um, his assessment and gave it to Necho. 36. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebedah, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. Chapter 24, verse 1. And in his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up. And Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. And then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely this has come upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all that had been done and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. Now the rest of the deeds of Jehoiakim and all that he had did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. And the king of Egypt did not come out of his land, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt, from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. Look at verse 8. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. 
Now, I'm going to stop there just for a moment, and I want you to see the chorus of things. It is an awful thing for a nation to have leadership to do things that are evil in the eyes of the Lord. Not just Israel, any nation. For the leadership of that nation to have attached to their reign and the decisions that they make, not that he loved his people and he did what was good for them. Wouldn't it be nice to just have a leader to say, um, I'm removing all the taxes that we are taxing you. And you just, you just don't see that. Because when power that is evil has its place, what is it going to continue to do? Evil. And enact more evil. So Josiah dies. Three sons are placed on the throne. Every one of the sons, it said, we just read there, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So all of this begins to to crumble and take place. And one of the great mistakes that they made was, while they knew that a descendant of David would remain on the throne, just throwing people in leadership positions is not a good thing. They just would put them on the throne. Did you notice there was no prayer about this? Okay, you're a son. Yeah, you're evil. You're wicked. But let's have you, you know? And then they did that three times. And and the northern king did that every single time. They continued to put kings on the throne that did evil. So Jehoiakim, verse 1 says, was weak. He became a servant of Nebuchadnezzar for three years. And then he rebels against Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar sends all these groups that he's captured to go down to Jerusalem to deal with the issue. Now I want you to go to chapter 25 now. We're going to spend some time here. Just before chapter 25, you can see in verse 20 of 24, it says... For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence. And Zedekiah, that was the name that Nebuchadnezzar gave the new king, rebelled against the king of Babylon. And here's the fall of Judah. We're going to read 25 down to verse 11, and then we're going to talk about this. In the ninth year of his reign, and in the tenth month, and on the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem, and he laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. Stop there for a second. Do y'all remember in Habakkuk I, I described um, the Babylonians? When they would come into a city, their, their warriors would have a sword in their hand, and they would have a bucket of dirt in the other hand. And when they would get to these city walls, they would dump the bucket of dirt out. They would fight and they would go get more dirt. And they would build these mounds that would go up to the top of the city walls in these ancient days to where eventually they could just walk up over and they could ride up over the city walls and go inside. This is what they're doing at Jerusalem. So they've got, they've got warriors who have bow and arrows, but they also have a bucket. They're carrying dirt and they're building up these things to um, get over the walls into the city. So verse 2, so the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. And on the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. And then a breach was made in the city. And all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden. And the Chaldeans were around the city and they went in the direction of Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. And all his army was scattered from him. And then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. And put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains. And took him to Babylon. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month... That was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord. This is where the temple is destroyed in 586. And he burned the house of the Lord 
and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house he burned down. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon, together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. What I'd like to do is we finish, kind of finish things up today, and I really do promise this, you're going to go, not true. This is going to be my shortest sermon, okay? It is. But I want to point out some things that I think are really important. And what I want to point out this morning is where I think that we may be potentially on the precipice of in our country. When I read 2 Kings 25, I see our country. I see a spiritual reality to a physical reality that was also a spiritual reality to the people of Judah that was taking place. So the wrath of Nebuchadnezzar has come now. There's been a rebellion that has happened and he comes in full force against Jerusalem. It's serious now. He's already taken some people away. Um, they have been at war for 22.6 years, 22 years and six months. Judah's been at war, either with the Assyrians, uh, the Babylonians, or Egypt. And since Josiah's death, immorality and idolatry had become their pathway again, their love of sin, idolatry, oppression of the poor, etc., had marked their way after Josiah. It didn't take long, and it doesn't take long, for unrighteousness to wreak its havoc. We've said this many times in these days, but let me just say it again. All nations crumble from within. And though, is, though Judah had been at war for 22 years and six months, what ultimately did them in goes all the way back to the reign of Manasseh. We read that a while ago. God was designing all of this. He was going to bring judgment because of the innocent blood that was shed and had taken place. And when a nation's leaders are consistently described as doing evil in the eyes of the Lord, that weakens a people always, and it weakens government, and it weakens families, it weakens a culture. During these days when this was happening and taking place, Jeremiah was a prophet. Jeremiah was preaching. You know how many converts Jeremiah had in his ministry? Zero. Nobody listened to Jeremiah. He was warning, let's come back. God, and, and, and nobody wanted to listen to Jeremiah. Nobody wanted to listen to Isaiah and Habakkuk. And again, when a, when a nation's leaders are consistently described or you can see as doing evil in the eyes of the Lord, it weakens a culture and it weakens everything among the people. So in Jeremiah chapter 25, listen to this, verse 11, it says, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. We're going to have these up on the screen. We're going to walk through them pretty quick, but I think these are principles um, that you ought to write down. You may not be a note taker. Maybe you've got a brilliant mind and you can just remember um, my soothing voice, what it says to you, and you can just write it down in, in uh, your brain. This is how a land falls. First principle is this, is that when sin is pervasive, weakness takes root in every part of society. Every single part of society. Judah had had 22 years and six months since Josiah had died. Those 22 years and six months were full of idolatry, immorality, sin, spiritual neglect. When sin is pervasive, weakness takes root in every part of society. Every aspect of it. You look around today, the family is weak. Why? Sin is reigning. Churches are really struggling. Why? Sin is reigning. There, there, is, there is so many things that we, we know to be true, but the reality is this, is that sin can never, it can never strengthen a people, right? It can only weaken a people. So this was the condition when 
Judah began to fall. It had already been the condition when Assyria came in and took the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, and scattered them. Here's the second principle. Every time that sin is pervasive and weakness takes root in every part of the a city, an enemy rises up or an enemy comes in and exerts oppressive power over the people. And I believe we live in these days of incredibly oppressive power. You look around today and we are in a, I remind us, we are in a spiritual war, not a physical war. It has physical manifestations But we are in a spiritual battle. Paul writes about this. We know this. We know that there's a great enemy of God and a great enemy against the people of God. This was the case. Y'all remember the book of Judges? 400 year period of time. They They would rebel against God. An enemy would come in and take over. Oftentimes during those days, it was the Philistines. They would cry out to God, God, we rebelled against you. Would you help us? God would raise up a judge, a savior like Samson and Gideon, Deborah, Barak, those those that were there. God would raise this one up. He would deliver them again and they would go, yay God. And then another generation would come and they would forget about God. And they did this circle, this cycle for 400 years. Here they are again doing this very same thing. They They had had this great revival. This great rescuer named Josiah, he had gotten rid of all those things. And as soon as he dies, they just want to go back to that. And an enemy comes in by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, who had been prophesied a hundred years earlier that a king from Babylon was going to come. Jeremiah spoke that he was going to come, and, and he's come now. So this is the case. When sin is pervasive, weakness takes root in every aspect of a culture and a society. And an enemy, there's a vacuum that is created. And an enemy will rise up and begin to speak things and do things. And it will always exert oppressive power. That's what they do. And they do it well. Why? Because the the ultimate king of those evil nations is Satan himself the liar. And they will look and sound just like him. You know, in our day and time, it's different. You know, we've had, we've had 9-11 in our country, but, you know, um, we've not had foreign armies invade our country where there's battles taking place in the 50 states. But we live in a day and time where it's different. We have cyber warfare now, which may potentially just be absolutely devastating. Can you imagine if, if a nation just crashes our financial institution in, in all of those things through cyber warfare? There's the danger of chemical warfare. I'm trying to think, should I say this or should I not say this? We just went through a huge two-year period where I think it's pretty clear that a disease was manufactured in a lab in China and it caused devastation. If, and so we've seen, we've seen what these kinds of things. So we, we live in a different time than what we're reading here. But it's still true. When sin is pervasive in a culture, it affects every part of the society. Some kind of enemy is going to rise up and speak and do things that will oppress the people. And here's what happens thirdly. Strongholds are built around people's lives and strongholds purposes are to tear down things. So when the Babylonian army and these other armies that were, that were sent in with, with them gathered around the, the walls of Jerusalem which were all up and they built these places to siege the city they build these strongholds where people can't get out people can't get in you can't get food in people are starving there's no water they can get in and strongholds are built around people's lives and strongholds tear down and break down a society and i think we're living in a day today where there are many strongholds again we've talked about this and i just want to talk about it honestly because i think we should be honest about things and we should be able to to be honest about stuff in church we may have some different perspectives of things but i think we 
we, we, we should look at things from a truth lens. As a kid, I never could have imagined this. And as a young youth minister, I never could have imagined. I knew eventually I was going to become a pastor. I never could have imagined, never could have fathomed this conversation that we were having today about gender stuff and the confusion about that. Never could, could many of you that are older than me, God bless you, who would have imagined that our Supreme Court in this country would say that it's totally legal and good for a nation for a woman to be married to a woman and a man to be married to a man. These things like this are strongholds. And when they are established, it starves out of people. That's, that's why they had these siege works. They would, they would place these places there around these cities of ancient, with these ancient walls to not allow anything to come in. What happens when you're stuck inside? Fear takes over. I mean, just extreme fear takes over. Can you imagine living? It's believed it took, it took almost a decade to overthrow Jerusalem. Can you imagine being inside there? And this foreign army that's there and, and the, the battle and the things that were happening and taking place. Here's the fourth principle. When sin is pervasive, it creates a weakness in every root, in every part of that society. It takes root. An enemy comes in or an enemy rises up. It exerts oppressive power. Strongholds are built around people's lives. Strongholds just tear down the society. And I mentioned it a while ago, and here's the, here's the fourth one. Spiritual famine sets in. It just sets in. There's not an, Indian, there's not an indication um, that anybody inside the walls are falling on their knees praying. The indication is they were continuing on. Now, yes, they were fearful, but God's judgment was going to come. And so a spiritual famine comes in. And you can see in verse 3 there, it's a, it was a physical famine. On the ninth day of the fourth month of the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. You couldn't get stuff in. You couldn't grow anything in there. I mean, it was just absolutely devastating. And I look around at our broken world church and i hope that you as a follower of jesus are forced to your knees like i am over the broken brokenness that we see all the time in our country that we we should be driven to our knees to pray for god to move and for god to work but we live in a day and time of extreme famine spiritually in our country what was once a thriving nation where there was a God-centered focus is gone now. Those days are gone. There's a crumbling of our society. And again, um, <clears throat> I have great hope because of what we're going to walk through in the book of Daniel. So it's, so it's not all awful. God raises ruins, right? He raises ruins. He can do that. But a spiritual famine, I think, has set in. And I think we, we see it in our country today. We are living Isaiah 520 that we, wrote, we, we read a while ago. <laughs> oh, this is sweet. No, 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 no. That's not sweet. That's bitter. Oh, this is good. No, 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 culture. That's not good. That's evil. And living in a world that turns things upside down and renames things, and that is happening on a pretty consistent basis, too, because the meaning of words is critical. We live in a famine. We live in a famine. Here's the fifth principle. A breach happens where there's a breakthrough. And I think over time, over the previous generations, to some of the laws that have been made, Supreme Court decisions, there were strongholds that were set up in our country around the family and around the church and around uh, morality and, and honor of children and righteousness. And eventually there's a breakthrough. A breach is a section of the wall is torn down. And when that's torn down, you don't climb over anymore. You just walk in. And so look at verse 4. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of the war fled by night by the way of the gate <coughs> between the two walls by the king's garden, and the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of Arabah. A breach happens. There's a break that happens. And, and the enemy now is not just surrounded, but the enemy is in the midst. 
So when we get to January, we're going to study the book of Jude. About three decades into the founding of the church, already all over Asia Minor, where all of these churches have been started, even, in, even among some of the Jewish churches, false teaching had taken place. And it had infiltrated the church. And so Jude, the Lord's half-brother, is writing to the churches to address false apostasy and looking at it in history, but also looking at it, what was happening and taking place in the country. And I think this is where we are. I think a breach has happened and taken place, and there's been an enemy that's come in. There's been this, there's been this, this coming in of it creating great confusion. And here's the next principle that's there. Here's the sixth one. There is a deep breakdown of the men in the culture. Did you notice what it said there? That when the breach happened, during the middle of the night, what did the men that were fighting, what did they do? They ran out in the, of, of the city, leaving their families and their children and women in the city, and they fled during the night. Now, women are never second-class citizens. Women are awesome. They are strong They know God. They have influence. They they have been created by God, given great gifts by God. But I want to be clear about this, and I think it's true, is that God has always called men to be courageous. Not that He's not called women to be courageous. He has. But He has called men to be great protectors and to great fighters and to great warriors for their families, and for the spiritual life of a nation. And when you look at our culture today, and it, it started, this, I think this breach, this siege happened decades ago where we began to say men are toxic, men are awful, and some men are, and some women are. But men in the room this morning, we have a... F- Phenomenal call to not not be men who run away during the middle of the night, but to be men who stand and stand for righteousness and to do the right thing. So breach happens in the wall in the middle of the night. They're like, somebody started it. Let's get out of here. And listen, they left their families inside the city when a breach was there and fled for their own safety. One of the things that we need is deep humility among men today. Humility is not a weakness. It is a great strength. Men are willing to fight and surrender their lives for the good of the gospel. The sixth thing, or that, that is the sixth thing, the breakdown, breakdown of the men in the culture. S- seventh reality is this, is that eventually in a nation that has done all of these things, the houses of worship, the center of worship is destroyed. So Nebuchadnezzar comes in and did you notice what he did? He burned everything. He literally burned everything. Every bit of the temple was, was that way. We could read further in chapter 25. Um, he takes the gold vessels that are inside that are used for righteous purposes and they're carried back to Babylon Eventually, they become the possession of Darius is the, is the Persian king, and then Cyrus becomes, and eventually all of the golden vessels that are in the temple, they're brought back to the temple. It's amazing how God kept all that stuff, but he did. Um, but they carry all of that stuff away. And this is the deep concern that we have as we begin to finish up things today. This is the deep concern that we must have, is that when the people of God in churches who claim the name of Jesus and who claim to be people who love his word become houses of lots of other things except houses that aim to glorify Jesus. Then there's a breakdown of worship that happens in a society. And one of the reasons that we are where we are today is because there's been a tremendous breakdown of the church, of not worshiping God authentically and not walking with Him authentically. And houses of worship need to be strong, for they are good for cities and 
small towns and counties and states and for the nation. Eighth principle is this. If nobody's doing anything about this and eventually the city walls are broken down and they remain for generations. And this happens. Eventually over time after the 70 years there were three waves of people that returned back to Babylon. The very last return to Babylon is, um, is led by Nehemiah if you remember that. Um, he's in He's away still. He's been born in captivity. He's there. He hears about the walls around Jerusalem, that nobody's done anything about the walls around Jerusalem. And he knows that the walls symbolize strength for the people of God. And God puts on his heart and, and he seeks his leader. Can I go back? And he allows him to go back. And Nehemiah looks at the walls. And the book of Nehemiah is just this incredible book of his love for the city. And so I just want to say this this morning. Are there any Nehemiah or Nehemiahs? I don't know what, what the right word would say in the room today. Who love our cities like Nehemiah loved Jerusalem. Is there anybody in the room today that loves righteousness enough to live? We, we can't fix everything, but we sure can pray. We can in our area of life live in such a way and I think we, again, live in, in, in a day where there's been such utter destruction spiritually. And it seems to be remaining for several generations now. It did until Nehemiah was awakened by God to go and do something about it. And I've got a ninth one. It's not on the screen, but let me give you the ninth one. It's found in... 25 verse 11. When all of that happens, those eight things happen that eventually, here's what you have. People are exiled from real life in every kind of way. Where people don't know what to do. They don't know where to turn. They don't know what happens. And this is what happens with Judah. They are exiled and they are taken away. There's a scattering that happens because of sin. All of that brings us to Daniel chapter 1. That's what happens right before you begin to read the pages of Daniel 1. So listen to this, and we're going to be through in just a moment. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring in some of the people of Israel that Nebuchadnezzar had brought back with him, both of the royal family and of nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, incompetent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. This is a description of the first wave of people that come back and who we know as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They would have been young boys likely when they were brought back. We learn that Daniel serves from Nebuchadnezzar all the way to King Cyrus of Persia. So he would have been very young. That's a 70-year period and a little bit more than that. And so he would have been very young when we begin to read him about him in the pages of Scripture. We don't know 10, 11, 12, 13. Somewhere around there would have been Daniel's age. So here they are. They're planted now in a land that they didn't know. All they had known, all that they, they had grown up with was knowing what had happened. For 22.6 years, Judah was in war, immorality, idolatry. All, this is all that they had known. And now they're plucked up and they're planted in Babylon. And they, listen to this, these young boys thrive. They don't live in fear. 
And we'll begin to see next week that they make a decision at a very young age. I would love to have heard these four young boys probably talk together about, let's live for God. And let's, let's live according to the law about food. Let's don't eat the king's food that they're going to force us to do. Let's live for God. Wouldn't you love to have heard that conversation because it seems like that's probably what they did and they decided that they were going to live differently. So when they get to Babylon, they settle by the Chabar River that's there. And they settle in communities and it begins a devastating 70-year period of time. They settle in their lives as exiles. And someone eventually wrote these words. If you have your Bibles, and we're going to close with this this morning. I want you to turn to Psalm 137. So we don't know if this was written while they were there. This was written after they were there. But here's a description of where they were. By the way, as you're turning there, in 1400 B.C., they entered the Promised Land. 1000 B.C., David captures Jerusalem. In 920 B.C., just 80 years later after David captures Jerusalem, the kingdom divides and becomes a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. In 720 B.C., the northern kingdom is taken away by Assyria. From the time period of David taking Jerusalem to the destruction of the temple from 1000 to 586, 414 years happen to take place. 814 years by the time that they entered the promised land to the time that they were carried away in exile. 814 years of God's unbelievable patience with them. And them having an opportunity to walk in His promises. And the majority of those years rejecting God's promises and not wanting his presence. So look at verse 1 of Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we we hung up our lyres. It wasn't a time for music, they're saying. But there, their captors, verse 3, they wanted songs. Our, tormentor, our tormentor's mirth saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And they say, How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites on the day of Jerusalem. How they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Here's what they did to the, many of the Jewish children. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. You hear the heartache in that song? 814 years that they had opportunity to walk in God's promises and most of the time they didn't. All that time God being... Aren't you glad God's patient? Man, He was patient with them. So these young boys get to Babylon. And we're going to get in great detail next week. And they begin to live what I learned when I moved to Germany in 2004. I love the country of Germany, but it's a bit wacko too. Aspects of it. Foreign language. Angry people. Um, fast driving highways. That was pretty awesome. About six months into that, I'm like, what did I do to my family? My kids were coming home. They had to to be put in German public school. And they come home crying every day. I don't know what's being said. I'm behind in school. And and I remember 
sitting in one of the subway stations in Dusseldorf and just put my head in my hands and thought, God, what have I done to my family? Did I hear you right? Were we, sp- were we supposed to come here? Because it sure doesn't look like it's working well. And I went back to the book of Daniel in the subway station. And I discovered something called the geography of Jesus that has transformed my life. And here's what the geography of Jesus is. Geography describes a place on a map, mountains, rivers, city names, topography. But the geography of Jesus has nothing to do with that. You know what the geography of Jesus is? It's a life that lives in the presence of God wherever you are. That he's the place you live. That he's your passion. Some, if you can get to that place, and I'm not always at that place, it's a lesson I've learned and I continue to learn, is that despite circumstances, you can actually thrive in a difficult place where the difficulties aren't going to go away. Daniel would never return to Judah. He would never return. From all that we know, He serves under Nebuchadnezzar all the way to King Cyrus of Persia, and he dies in Persia. He never got to go back, and yet he thrived. And yet as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not bowing to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar, they're like, we will not bow. And they say to the king, O king, our God is able to save us if you throw us into the fire, and even if he doesn't, We will not bow. So the challenge for us is to live in the geography of Jesus. That despite of the setting, circumstances, health issue, whatever crisis it is, you and I can live in the presence of Christ no matter what. That's the geography of Jesus. And that's what we're going to talk about over the next four to five weeks. Let's pray.